Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. There's a sense among some Americans that the American dream is dying. Marriage rates are declining and fewer children are being born. Is economics behind this nationwide shift or something else? I'm joined for today's episode of Political Economy by my AI colleague, Angelo Sheedy, to talk about her research into whether raising a family has become unaffordable. Angela is a senior fellow and the Rose Scholar in Poverty Studies here at AI, where she studies the effect of federal safety net programs on low-income people in America. Angela is also the author of the forthcoming report, the Evidence on Family Affordability for AI. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. The issue of family affordability. I'm a little confused about how we even begin to talk about it. There are a lot of concerns that having a family and housing and college tuition, all that stuff has made that that kind of life, what we might think of as the good life, a, a, a like typical American, like that's becoming out of reach. And uh, some signs of that are, uh, you know, declining marriage rates, people having fewer children. Now, do we do we know that there's a quote unquote problem because we have statistics showing because there are affordability statistics telling us that, or are we kind of approaching it from the other direction that we look at marriage rates and we look at childbirth rates, and because those are down, we therefore conclude that there must be an affordability problem, and then we go looking for evidence of that. Well, we have a lot of statistics, (laughs) that's for sure. And actually, it's all of those. Um, And so I think that's been one of the challenges, even having this debate in kind of the policy sphere, because there are so many statistics, and they do kind of, I guess, depending on your perspective, they can tell a different story. So I recently looked at the data, uh, the existing data, to try to flesh some of this out. And it is true. So if you, if you just look at income, for example, mm-hmm. um, and there's multiple ways to measure income, but if you just look at family income, family income has increased um, in real dollars uh, uh, over time. Um, so actually families from an income perspective, for the most part, are doing, doing better on average. Um, and then you have to factor in, well, what about expenses? Have expenses increased because you can have income go up, but if your expenses go up disproportionately, you're going to feel that kind of affordability crunch. Um, and it turns out that expenses have gone up, but probably not as much as sort of this prevailing view of it becoming um, unaffordable to have a family, not as much as I think that that view has has suggested. So things like childcare certainly have gone up, but it's actually gone up because quality has increased or because, uh, you know, kids are going into preschool instead of going into what used to be just, you know, a woman babysitting for them. So quality's increased, so those costs have increased a little bit. Housing certainly has increased, but not as much, I think, again, as the prevailing view suggests. So um, when you really look at the data, income has increased, costs have increased slightly, but not really enough to kind of suggest we have this affordability crunch. So what you do have, though, is a lot of perceptions that it has become unaffordable to um, have a family. And much of that, I think, is driven by standards, Mm -hmm. um, changing standards over time. People 
want more our ex- things. Our expectations of what that standard middle class good life, what that means, certainly not the same thing as probably when you and I were, were, were children. Exactly. And so people want to meet those standards. They want the bigger house. They want the two cars instead of one car. They want to put their kids in all of the after school activities. So when you factor those things in, then yes, I think that's driving this perception. And it's across almost all public polls that you see. People say, the reason I we're not having as many kids as maybe I would like is because of economic issues. Um, and so, so I think, back to your point, it's both that we do see fertility declining, we see marriage declining in people. And then when you ask people, why is that happening? It's usually an economic argument. But then I think what's not factored in is just how people's standards change, perceptions change, and really how we view family life and what it's supposed to mean to us, I think, also has changed over time. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, we're, I mean this isn't just the United States. We're seeing declining birth rates everywhere, like countries with you know, you know, very different um, uh, you know, welfare states, safety nets. So kind of hard to say that we're do- that it's something just happening in the United States when to a greater or lesser extent, this is a sort of universal rich country phenomenon, right? Yes, it is um, for sure. I mean, across all European countries are dealing with, with uh, declining fertility issues. Um, and when you look historically at the data, fertility does tend to decline as income goes up and as education goes up. And that's what hap- has happened in European countries, as well as the U.S. For many, well, I just it, saw had, as we're recording this. I just saw uh, statistics on South Korea, where it, it has hit a new record low. Uh, so it's yeah, it's really right. hit the Asian countries, yeah. especially especially hard. Um, again, if you consider declining fertility um, a, a negative outcome, which I think most people do, but there's just a lot of cultural, kind of global cultural aspects going into it in terms of women's empowerment, what, um, you know, women valued a hundred years ago versus today is just very different. Um, and that just delays marriage and then ultimately delays childbearing, uh, which is, uh, probably the main reason fertility has declined across the world. Right. Is it, you know, how much is just, again, you sort of got, got at it sort of just like a changing preference about what people value that maybe, you know, women don't look at children as a, as uh, a key part of their life differently versus versus a career, or maybe they want, maybe they view one kid versus maybe someone else, uh, a mother, grandmother who thought like a family was four kids or five kids. Now maybe they think it's one kid, and that's and that preference is not necessarily driven by affordability. It's 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 a, just a kind of a different kind of imagining of your life. It is exactly, and I think that's what makes the policy response uh, so hard. And also, I think that's partly why. Thought leaders um, do tend to gravitate towards the economic argument because that's easier to fix, <laughs> right? If, if it is an economic argument, we fix that by, oh, let's increase government transfers. Let's you know, do something else that just gives people more money to, to raise uh, their families. Um, if it's not that and it's more this cultural argument or changing preferences, or that's a much harder thing uh, to try to change over the long term. Something not government uh, would be good at. If it's if it's pure, if it's purely a cost, I mean they've tried in they've tried in countries, sort of bri- bribing people yeah. or giving them money to have you know more kids, and I, it's sort of my impression that's not worked out. Maybe they have you know maybe they have 
a kid, the timing changes or something, yeah. but they don't end up having a lot more kids. I mean, that seems to be the real yeah. frustration with that side of policy. These sort of fine, if people need money, we'll give them more money, fix a problem, but the problem doesn't seem to get fixed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my read of the literature as well. And there's scholars at AEI that have looked in this at this, and that's exactly right. The policies around economics have not led to. Uh, you know, changing fertility rates at all, which suggests then that that's not really the underlying cause. And uh, you could also look at sort of more work-life balance issues where, you know, people, you know, paid leave policies or job flexibility policies that kind of make, uh, you know, for women, especially working and raising a family easier. I mean, do those work? I mean, they, ha- they haven't been shown to affect fertility right. either. I mean, they certainly, when you say, do they work, they probably uh, yeah. relieve some stress maybe, you know, do like things on the margins, um, certainly. Right. Um, but yeah, it's those kind of things are not going to, you know, meaningfully I mean, relieving stress is fertility. not like an insignificant, that's not like an insignificant no, plus. right. So I don't want to make right, it right, seem right. like that's not important, yeah, right. um, which it, it can be. We could argue about whether the government should be yeah. doing that or somebody else, but um, but yeah, but those kind of policies, while helpful in many ways, it, it's not going to affect fertility. Well, that, so that sort of gets at what, like, what's the point of this debate? Is the point of this debate um, so more so marriage rates go up? Is the point so people have more kids? Is it to relieve stress on people? Is it to is it a race to uh, be perceived as cutting checks to a particular group so they'll vote for you? What what is what is the point here? Yeah. What what are, what are we trying? to do uh, through the through 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 this debate. Yeah, well I think certainly the cynical view is it's much much of it's p- political um, to w- politicians want to look like they're doing something. I think though even, you know, not being cynical, it's you know, this is what we tend to do, policymakers tend to do. There's certainly a problem that has been identified. People are saying it's harder to raise a family. I think there was a recent poll where it was like three quarters of parents said that it's, um, you know, very hard economically to raise a family in the U.S. So you you see those data and you're thinking, wow, that's a big problem. The immediate reaction is what can we do as a government? Sure. You know, what policies can we put in place to fix that problem? And so that's where you come, well, let's send them a child tax credit, more of a child tax credit. Let's give them some paid leave. Maybe that will relieve their um, anxiety around, around finances. And in the end, if you've you know, if you really are being honest with ourselves, is that going to move the needle? Likely not, but it makes people feel <laughs> like they're doing something. Um, I mean, I would like to see a survey about what people, you know, in you know the mid seventies did they did did they people who were sort of considered the the heart of the middle class did they think raising a family was hard? Yeah, I'm guess I I mean I don't I mean I I would like to see that poll on that. I'm guessing they kind of would. Yeah, I mean when ha- I mean. It always seems kind of yeah. hard. Well, it's funny you right? say that. I just had this conversation actually with a friend of mine. I think in in my view in the 70s, mothers and fathers would have said, yeah, it's hard. It's hard having four or five kids. It's hard having two kids because that's, when, especially when they're young, when you have kids, it's hard. So I'm not necessarily sure that's changed. I think what has changed is our expectations around life and what goes into life. I mean, houses are bigger today, right? Yes. And it's, it's hard. It's also hard to go to a job every day, right? right? To get up and, but that's what you do. And so those expectations have changed a little bit. And so I think people are less willing to accept some of the challenges of life because they don't see the same 
payoffs that maybe they saw 30 years ago for whatever reason. Yeah, the example I love to give is uh, uh, when I would take my kids, Pat, when we, uh, I'm from Chicago, we used to live in Chicago every once in a while, we, we drive past the house I grew up in and the kids would be like, wow, I, did, I didn't know you were that poor. <laughs> poor. So, now, so now there's sort of a family mythology that I was, I'm, I was, but I certainly did not consider myself poor by any, it was kind of a working class neighborhood, but the house is certainly, we've never lived in a house that small. And as a kid, I I, 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 I remember what, what our family trips were as a kid. So we're in Chicago. So there was a family, I think there was a family trip to uh, um, uh, Milwaukee one time. There was a family trip, I think to two other places in Wisconsin. I think those were the, we were not doing a 10 day Iceland, Great Britain, France, Netherlands kind of family tour. Um, so the expectations certainly um, have have changed. Now, um, let's talk about some of these ideas. Safety net. Uh, we have a safety net in the United States. United States. Uh, how big is it? The safety- it's a lot of parts, and it's a lot of money. That I know. Yes, the safety net in the U.S. is very robust. Um, so there's, you know, suggestions. It's hard to keep track of all the programs because yeah. they they come. They don't usually go, but they do come. <laughs> Many new programs, yeah. eighty plus federal programs. So they have federal dollars in them. What we would call safety net programs, which primarily means they're um, targeted towards low income families. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's a lot of programs. Um, there's kind of four, I would say four or five major ones. Um, but if you think about a low-income family who has limited employment, maybe no income at all or very low wages, we have programs in this country that are in place to cover their health insurance, to provide them help with affording food, to provide help affording housing, um, and help providing uh, cash uh, for other incidentals. Um, for the most part, all low-income families would be eligible, and it's fairly easy to access those programs, with the exception of maybe housing. Um, that's structured a little bit differently, and not all families who are eligible receive housing assistance. But those who do receive it, it's a fairly generous uh, benefit. Now, every, every think tank, you know, across you know any political spectrum, has reforms that they would like. And I think a lot of people view this pandemic era as pointing toward one obvious reform. They'll, they'll say, gee, you know, during, the, during 2021, we started cutting all these checks, families, child poverty rate went way down. Guess what? We just ran an amazing experiment and we figured out how to reform the safety net, which is make it a lot bigger, give people more money. Oh, and surprise, surprise, poverty will go down. Um, is this the lesson that sort of you and your colleagues, other people, have, have, is that the, the big lesson that we've now drawn from, from the pandemic experience and what to do next? Well, that's certainly the lesson some people have drawn, but myself and colleagues at AEI have really worked hard over the past year plus to push back on that, that you know, finding because, yes, you send people cash from the government and poverty rates, point in time, poverty rates going to go down. The problem is, is that that is ignoring the underlying causes of poverty. That's one of the problems, um, meaning that if you send people cash, it's likely going to reduce employment, which then puts people you know, not on a positive trajectory um, for many reasons, financial and non-financial. It also can influence marriage behaviors, for example, childbearing. You know, there's all sorts of kind of unintended consequences that might come from just transferring cash to people. And then the other reason I I kind of have 
somewhat of a problem with the narrative about, oh, we send people money, it reduces poverty. The, the amount of money that was sent to households during the pandemic, while in the aggregate level was enormous, on a per household basis was, you know, substantial, but not enough to, you know, really fundamentally alter a household. <laughs> so meaning that you, you have households who went maybe a couple thousand dollars below a poverty line, which is basically, basically an arbitrary line, to a couple thousand dollars above a, that line. Are we really, you know, affecting kind of the fundamental uh, structure of that household and how they're, you know, are they flourishing now because they have a couple extra thousand dollars? I think there's a lot of arguments to be made that you're not actually um, you know, fundamentally altering the trajectory of that family. Well, and if you're you were talking about some of the the, the trade offs, which is what uh, difference between like a serious policy analyst and an activist. I always say is that an activist for a cause does not want you to think about the trade offs. So what you've just described are you've described some trade offs with that uh, w- w- from sending sending that money. So if you just hear about, okay, you went from a couple thousand below to a couple thousand above, they're like, well, hey, that's that's pretty good. You know, I mean, you ask people, uh, would you do you, would you not want that money? They, yeah, I'll take it. I realize now I'm not, you know, I'm not the family Zuckerberg here or something like that. Uh, I'm not Elon Musk, but I'm better off. But it's your job, I would guess, as someone who thinks about policy, to think about those trade-offs, not just sort of, sort of the short-term boost. And, and it seems to me that that's that there's a lot of talk about that short-term boost. But let's talk about that boost for a second. What do we know about how child poverty changed from like just before the pandemic to throughout the pandemic? To well, now, I guess. Yeah. So we do know. Um, so if you so there was a temporary expansion to the child tax credit, which um, you know gave families uh, a couple thousand dollars depends on the number of kids and what you were getting before, but it did give families more money and it gave that gave it to them on a monthly basis. If you ignore just that money, um, but include all the other pandemic money, um, we know employment declined pretty dramatically um, early on in the pandemic, but all of those government relief efforts really prevented poverty from moving very much at all. Um, so it basically stayed about the same, maybe even uh, declined um, because there was unemployment benefits going out, economic stimulus payments, all of that. Um, what we saw during the six months that um, the child tax credit uh, was being provided was also a fairly large reduction in poverty. Again, not surprising. It's really just a math equation. You send a couple hundred dollars per month to households. And in this policy, um, the other way it changed, it not only expanded the child tax credit that existed before, it sent it for the first time to households without any income, without any employment, without any income at all. Um, the current CTC, not the temporary policy, is conditioned on um, having some income, so some employment. So that obviously was going to reduce the poverty rate on a you know point-in-time basis. Um, so, so it's certainly true that families during the pandemic, at least from a financial perspective, um, did better than they did um, before the pandemic and even after some of these temporary measures uh, expired. Um. Uh, if you don't have the numbers, the numbers off the top of your head, that's fine. I, 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 I'm not here to quiz anybody. But do you like what was the child poverty rate like in 2019? Yeah. So and there's like I mean, what, and like then it dropped. Like what did yeah, it drop? So to? there's a, I mean, there's a few different ways to measure yeah. it. But if you measure it um, by including all government benefits, you know, factoring in uh, geographic differences, whatever, um, it went from like around 10 percent to roughly half. 
that. Okay, so that seems like a significant decline. That was just me. from the child tax okay. credit. Yeah, and, and so and then, uh, but now we've stopped that. We've, yes, and so now it's going to go back up. Or? Uh, yeah. So the same simulations again. It's it's a little bit challenging to even think about it because this is all based on simulations right. because it's not really asking people every month how much income you have. Right, so it's right. it's all a little a bit it's high. A model. Yeah, it's a model. So so yes, when you take that money away in your simulations and your models. Poverty, poverty goes back up. We won't know until September, um, next September, 2023, um, uh, what happened to the annual poverty rate, which is kind of what we pay attention to. Um, my guess is, yeah, it probably is going to go up a couple percentage points um, because of the, you know, some of these uh, uh, government relief efforts uh, going away, um, and that's not surprising. And I, I will, I would guess that um, New York Times and the Washington Post will make note of that if there is indeed an increase. And then I think the, the response will be, well, we need, you know, by some at least, that we need to go back to what we were doing before. And why yeah. we shouldn't have stopped, that we missed an opportunity. We had figured something out through this experiment that was sort of forced on us. And then we throw away the lesson of the experiment. I mean, I think, I, I, mean, I see that idea that we, yeah. we ran this unintentional experiment. We figured something out, yay. And now we're not going to learn the lesson, um, but you, that's not the lesson you've drawn. And yet you do, you're not arguing for the status quo. No, not necessarily. Okay. okay so what, what is, so what is like, what is your reform idea? Yeah. So I think I'm not arguing for the status quo because I think the status quo, the safety net programs we have also are too focused on the short term rather than the long term. So that's my one of my main problems with the child tax credit expansion and the argument that, oh, let's just go back to it because it's going to reduce poverty. That's a focus on the short term. Um, not surprising. You send people money, a poverty rate's going to decline. What we need to do, um, move away from the status quo, is focus more on the long term. What are those underlying factors that actually prevent people from working so that they can you know, experience some upward mobility? And in that way, that's where I think the reforms need to happen. Um, we have safety net uh, programs in place now that continue to disincentivize employment. Um, we have safety net progr programs that continue to penalize marriage, mm -hmm. and yet we know employment and having um, being in a married family is better for um, not only financial health of the household, but also for um, children's outcomes, for example. So we need reforms that focus on more the long-term effects of these policies and really focus on how do we increase employment, how do we ensure that families um, have the ability to form two-parent families and have the kind of stability that they need that their, their kids can flourish? I think that those are the reforms that we should be focused on rather than just thinking, how can we send more money, <laughs> send more money into these households? You, is there, are, there, um, are there specific changes you would make to meet those sorts of those sorts of reform goals we did actually so colleagues of mine matt whitinger and scott winship here at aei um, we recently wrote a chapter um, focused on how would you reform the safety net to increase reduce poverty but also increase upward mobility and we basically were arguing that we need to um, kind of break down some of the silos of these programs, give states both more flexibility to run programs with more of a long-term view, um, meaning how do we really get families or really get parents to increase their employment? How do we really encourage marriage? Because that's what's going to benefit families in the wrong, long run. Mm -hmm. 
give states the flexibility to do that, but also hold them financially accountable. So we actually propose that half of the what the federal government currently spends on all these safety net programs get put on the states, that they have to contribute over time. And there's some details in there that I'm glossing over, but sure. over time, they it move, the, the system we have now moves towards 50% of the costs covered by the states to make sure they have some skin in the game and they actually design and operate programs that are going to help people in the long term rather than just focusing on the short term and how do you get um, families more money in the in the near term. Um, one thing I noticed that during the pandemic when uh, the government was spending money on these programs and cutting checks is that the, um, the idea that this is the, we are now taking the first step as society toward providing a universal basic income to people. And so that started to hear a lot more about that debate. And it certainly, it seemed to me that there were people who just did not like the idea that there would be any kind of requirements, work requirements. They just don't like that, that idea that just be, be uh, you're a human being, you deserve money for a certain, uh, a certain, a certain societally agreed upon lifestyle. And all your talk about work requirements and, and this goal that that that's besides the point that we should that it should just be a universal income for being being a human uh, is that do you sense that some people who don't like your ideas like that's that's the ideological foundation of what they're talking about they just don't like the idea that you're putting any kind of requirement on on, on people to do anything give them a check. Yes, that's definitely a prevailing view. I mean, there are a a number of cities, I mean, more than a dozen, I think, across the country that are running UBI experiments right now. And that is their, that's their view, um, that there should be no requirements on it, that people just need extra money, they need a guaranteed, you know, income source. Um, And to your earlier point, they they don't think about those unintended consequences. They don't think about the trade-offs, both at the individual level and at the societal level. Um, and that's a, it is a prevailing view, um, especially among people kind of on the left. Um, and it, it certainly has gained traction uh, during the pandemic. Uh, one last question. We had these big welfare reforms in the 1990s. Is there, is there a consensus about how well they worked? And, or, or was there a consensus? And now that consensus is breaking down. It seems to me that everyone kind of agreed that they, 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 there was, they got people to, you know, sort of off welfare and into the workplace, and that was a good thing. And now it sounds like it's more of a mixed reaction to those reforms. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I think that the the goalposts changed, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I think that's part of the story. So welfare reform, I think there's a consensus among serious thinkers and people who have studied this for a long mm-hmm. time. Welfare reform was initially designed to uh, not only reduce government dependency, so reduce receipt of cash welfare, but to uh, increase employment, right. so kind of replace um, you know, dependency with employment. There is no denying that that was not, um, that that was not the outcome that happened. Mm-hmm. In, I mean, you just cannot deny looking at the data that employment, especially among never married mothers, increased. Mm-hmm. You also can't, you look at the data, children have done better um, in the past 20 years, uh, and much of it is due to the welfare reform as well as other programs like the earned income tax credit. There's no denying that. I think where more of the debate has come in, like I said, the goalposts were moved. It was no longer about just having people receive less welfare and, and increase employment. It was, well, they're not in good jobs. 
They're not in the, they're not in the middle class. It didn't lead to upward mobility. Those things are all true, and part of the reason they're true is because welfare reform, while it was a success, was pretty narrowly focused on a particular population. It didn't really touch the the balance of the safety net. Um, And so I think that that kind of goalpost changing is just a natural tendency, not wanting to admit admit that a policy that many people thought was going to be a failure actually was a success. But then it's like, oh, well, yes, it was a success there, but it didn't do this. (laughs) And so it's true. It it still leaves some hard work to be done. But I don't think there's any denying that welfare reform wasn't wasn't successful. Angela, thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. 